Slog Talk Radio. joining us again today. Yes, today we're going to have another very interesting show. I have invited some of my dear old friends and colleagues on for a metaphysical roundtable. You know, there are so many misunderstandings about these things and words get bandied about in our society with actually very little understanding of what they are. We're not going to be doing an exhaustive defining and analysis of metaphysics. Worry not. But we are going to have some real fun and learn some valuable lessons about different aspects, different spokes, you could say, of the whole idea of metaphysics. And many people feel that metaphysics is the new physics to be. And there are many examples historically that have shown us that what was the metaphysics of one time period became the physics of the new era. One of the most kind of evident and obvious ones of these is uh, the advent of quantum physics, which for many people, such as physicist Dr. Fritjof Kapra, such as um, uh, Gary Zukov, such as uh, Dr. Itzhak Bentov and others, have seen the correlations between ancient wisdom teachings, East and West, and some of the articulations of the principles in quantum physics. Well, how could that be? Well, it is as though the ancient peoples were able to intuit, to surmise, to receive a download, if you will, in modern lingo, of a certain nature of consciousness, a certain nature of principles of the universe, of the cosmos itself, and bring it into form. Sometimes it happened through a dream, like the benzene um, uh, ring or other types of phenomena that would occur through meditations, through visionary experiences, through mystical experiences. And these have then become part of, actually, science, math, and now very much quantum physics. So it'll be very interesting to hear each of our guests tonight speak about their own respective areas in this field of metaphysics. And I remind you again that it's sort of, you could say, uh, physics in embryonic form. And that way you will have a lead into the future 
of what our physics in the 21st century will be. At the end of our discussion about metaphysics on the roundtable, we'll be concluding that and going into a specific discussion with Mary Ellen McCabe, one of our guests at the roundtable, on the subject of Francis Bacon, which has been a subject of her own studies for the past several years. She's writing a screenplay about this. It's a very interesting thing. Very few people really know much about his identity, and it will be a really interesting exploration for those interested to stay tuned for that part of the latter part of our show today. So, without further ado, let me introduce our our guests. Uh, first, we'll be hearing from Peter Roth. Peter Roth is an acclaimed intuitive counselor and healer in New York City for many, many years. He's the founder and director of the Heart River Center for Intuitive Healing and has taught thousands of people to become more intuitive and work powerfully with their own inner healing skills. He's been in private practice with clients from all over the world. His sessions are oftentimes on the phone or on Skype. He's a certified analyst and teacher as well of the human design system, a fascinating system, and Peter has done readings on me with this particular approach, and it's uh, an interesting synthesis in itself. And for a further, a later show, we will uh, have Peter back to discuss that. He also has a radio show called Energy Stew on Progressive Radio Network, where A Better World, and Mitchell J. Rabin was for many, many years as well, right alongside Peter, before we moved on to Blog Talk Radio. And uh, so we'll be hearing about, uh, talk about downloads, a new download that Peter himself experienced very recently, very recently, regarding numbers, circles and numbers, and he'll be sharing that with us in a moment. Our second guest is Carol Colmer. Carol is the wife of the well-known artist and author Hugh Colmer, who has been a guest on our show a few times, talking about a book that he wrote on the tarot and other interesting mythological subjects, in fact, going back many years. And both of them together uh, are the hosts of the Wyndham Retreat in beautiful Wyndham, New York, upstate. Interestingly, uh, Carol, who is a very dear friend, uh, was a longtime conservative Republican from New England when she met the teachings of Satya Sai Baba when her life upon that meeting took a very unexpected turn and escalation. And the way I put it in the newsletter, for those of you who get it, it says, and the escalator of which... She has been on ever since. So you'll hear from Carol talking about something she's been studying for a number of years based on the work of the Ascended Master Hilarion. And that has to do specifically with sound and the meaning of the alphabet as it shows up in our names. And the way you can understand something about the inner nature of someone through their name. So it's an awesome study, and Carol will be sharing that with us in short order as well. 
And our third guest is, as I mentioned before, Mary Ellen McCabe, who has been an intuitive counselor and still is, professional astrologer and teacher of the intuitive arts since the late 1970s. She pioneered the use of astrology with psychotherapy with some of New York's best therapists, and including myself, if I might dare say. She brings to her readings a 27-year background as both a student and teacher of the esoteric ancient wisdom teachings of the Great White Sisterhood and Brotherhood. So it'll be really interesting to hear what each of our members have to say. We'll have a general discussion after we hear their initial comments about what they do. So welcome, everybody. It's a pleasure to have you all. Are you all there? Oh, yes, Mitchell. We're so glad to be okay, here. Okay, good. <laughs> I wasn't sure we should yes, speak yet. Yes, yes, yes. Hi, Carol. Hi, Peter. <laughs> Hello, Mary Ellen. So long time. It's yeah, so Carol, long. I was hoping I'd see you in the, in in the, the physical studio. body here. <laughs> I know. That'll be the next round. Next We're round. just going to work with our holographs, our holograms tonight. Really? But uh, it's a good idea. So, Peter. Would you please speak with us about this really new revelation that you've had? I mean, here you've been a, an intuitive and a healer for so many years with your own school of intuitive healing, and very recently you called me up to announce that there's been this new revelation that you've had, and uh, I'd love for you to share that. Here we go. Sure, and by the way, while I was on twice, I got knocked off line so my phone i had to redial you so all of a sudden i might okay. disappear i'm on a landline there i don't know why it would be happening good so i don't either so but I'm you glad and the you're audience here now. Are, are aware of that uh yeah uh, i'll dial right back in if that happens again okay great okay but you are here and welcome yeah thank you and um this is very exciting what's happened and I had a sense that something was coming my way. I had no idea the timing of it could be next year or whatever, but all of a sudden, one day, I was uh, just finishing a an acupuncture session with um, a woman who's a, also a healer, so it was a very transformative session, and she's also an old friend. So on the way out, she was saying, you know, Peter, maybe you should think of doing some big project, a big healing project. And uh, and I was thinking, you know, that's nice. And then all of a sudden, while I was talking with her, within one or two seconds, this entire new healing concept, healing program, came into my consciousness. It was downloaded. And and then immediately I understood the whole concept, and I said to her, let me tell you about the healing system that I just received while we're talking, and here are all the details. And so I, I understood this whole system, and it was amazing how these things happen in life. Um, it was sort of like one big gestalt that just excited and was received by your consciousness. Right, and and often I, when I teach intuition, I do say to people, often you get a knowing, and it's yes. like a, a computer file that's been downloaded into your brain, and then you still have to open the file and go through it. Mm-hmm. And so this was, this came in, and not only did it come in as a file, but it actually opened right away, <laughs> and I could yeah. read it right away. 
Yeah, right, and, right. You knew the language. So yeah. what is it? Please share with us. I, I know right. it's great to hear the process that you went through <clears throat> in receiving it, that there was a suggestion, and voila, you know, moments later. I don't know if that means every time we have a suggestion we get such a revelation, but certainly we should be open to the possibility. Yes, well, it was the door had been opened, <laughs> and someone yes. was waiting on the other side of it, <laughs> or something. Right, right, right. Peter, <laughs> step this way. So, what right. is it that was revealed? What is it that you see? You, your description of it is so interesting because it, it, it sounds like it has to do with the use of number to bring us to our own sense of authenticity. You got it. What it is is that I was told that our birth dates are our spiritual address in the universe. They're the essence of who we're here to be. And and that's what forms us, is all of the magic around these numbers and what they represent in the universe. It's an algorithm. And we don't realize how powerful our birth dates are, and yet numerology can describe us in great detail because of our the numbers of our birth date. And, of course... Astrology, human design, destiny cards, they're, they're all derived from that date. Birth date originated or related, yeah. And yet also, now there are healers using algorithms of numbers. So there are certain sequences of numbers that you can attain and just be in the presence of that sequence of numbers and it'll shift consciousness, it'll it'll create uh, it's almost like a homeopathic or a flower essence, that kind of thing. Because everything you is know, math. It's very interesting. I, I think that there are both mathematicians who would wholly agree with you, and I think they've been yes. privately contemplating numbers in their own chambers for a long time and not letting the cat out of the bag about what they're actually doing and having ecstatic experiences therein. And I think musicians also have that inherent, intrinsic relationship to number and the uh, power of mathematics because, as we all know, all of music is predicated on math. Right. I think all of life is predicated on math. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, well, and even, you know, then you enter the space of sacred geometry, of course. You know. Well, even our thoughts, for instance, how are they transmitted through telepathy? How do we read each other's thoughts? Um and we can. How I mean, do we? I, how do we work intuitively? I I work intuitively all day long with people, and I know things I shouldn't know. How do they get into my brain? Is it somebody how do whispering they? something? What is the answer to that? Well, I, Good I think it's. I I think that information is form. Form is made up of math. And information, the word form is in the word information. Sure. So actually, information is the flow of form. And form is geometric, and that's mathematical. And so, so I do what believe. What is it that you yes. feel you uncovered, Peter, in okay. that revelation that is now having some real palpable effects on people? Yes. What I was told, first of all, was this power of our birthday. Then I was told yeah. that what we are to do with it is to create an 8-inch circle uh, with a black line, and it has to be 8 inches. And then within the circle, we're to draw our birth date, 
and it works on two ways. Uh, a, um, uh, I'm, I'm, for instance, I'm the healer, so we have a healee. So the healee <laughs> is the person yeah. who takes their birth date, draws it into the circle, having to use a green felt-tip pen, and the date is without any dashes or slashes or zeros before single digits. So it's just the plain numbers. There is a space between uh, day, day, month, and year. So then I receive that person's birth date. They email to me or whatever. And I draw that birth date into an eight-inch circle that I create. And I use a blue salted pen. Okay, so we have two circles with the same birth date in it. And this is a healing transmission that takes place over 10 minutes of time. So uh, it's a it's an equal 10, I mean, mutual 10 minutes. So we agree that we'll start, let's say, at 7 p.m. And actually tonight at 7 p.m. New York time, I am doing a transmission for maybe close to 100 people. And and so at that for that 10 minutes, the person, the healee, <laughs> Take, puts mm-hmm. their left hand on their birth date in the circle. At the same time, I put my right hand on their birth date in my circle. And during that 10 minutes, there's a transmission that I'm told deconditions the psyche. It's actually a stem cell treatment for the psyche and allows the psyche to transmute our stories of distress and limitation and lack mm-hmm. and our behaviors accordingly. So it's our basically our neurotic behavior gets mm-hmm. transmuted into into light and love. And in a way that we feel different. And it might not happen immediately to some people it does. It, I, I always say it's not a one-time healing. It's actually over 10 to maybe 15 weeks uh, of doing this once a week. This can actually create changes in the way we behave and the way we feel and think that's not based on uh, conditioning. So uh, we we get to clear ourselves and then start to live in the true essence of who we're here to be. It sure sounds wonderful. Uh, how long have you been doing it, and have, do you have any uh, stories, talk about stories, different kind of story, uh, of people who have passed through this process over well, the last no one has, or 10 no one, or 12 or 15 weeks? Yeah, no one has done it for the full length of time, but there have been a lot of, of people giving me feedback of how they – felt during the transmission and, mm-hmm. and and some people how it helped them after the transmission too, how they felt different and all of a sudden had more purpose in life, more clarity, uh, felt stronger within themselves. Was it something do, that, do you have a sense at all, Peter, of uh, whether that was sort of a, a momentary flash for them or was that something that has endured over a week or two or three or four or five or... What, I, I think there are permanent shifts with each one, but the depth of it is still, you know, is different for each person. 
So I do think that everybody is slowly melting away, you know, but it's not only melting away. We we can't eliminate our lessons in life, but we can be stronger in facing them and get through them quickly by believing in ourselves, loving ourselves, trusting ourselves to say yes and no in situations we haven't been able to before. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Well, it's very powerful. It's very powerful if you go back in time among other ancient texts you will come across the Upanishads and um, in them I remember having a very early encounter in my life with them and it was the first time I actually heard the phrase the unconditioned world and or to even love unconditionally when I was 16 those were new ideas to me and yet I kind of gravitated to them quickly and I said, there's something very powerful here, because if my brain can be unconditioned, that means it must currently be very conditioned. And so I feel that you're on to something potentially very powerful for people if you can actually um, kind of uh, verify that this is having the effect that you believe that it is. Yeah, I, I'm even an example myself, because I, I'm doing this for myself as well with my right hand and my left hand. And sure. I've noticed lately I've been going through some situations where I normally would have a, a more difficult response to, and all of a sudden yeah. I just feel much dirtier inside myself about it. Oh, very nice. willing to. Are you doing it actually even right now as we're speaking on this round table? No, I, I, I need to be focused, you know, put my attention there. Also, I You I can't multitask. But I also yeah. recommend to stay away from electronics when people are doing this. I see. I see. You know, not yeah, to be yeah. around these fields. Well, and, this is you know, really but not, interesting. You, know, it? you can't help it in our homes, but still, you don't have to be right at the computer. Right, 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 right. Well, thank you for that. I want to just ask another question about this. You use the word algorithm. How is it that you're using algorithms in this uh, space. Well, algorithms are only, but they really are a sequence of of numbers. Sure. That that has some purpose. And so the sequence of numbers of our birth date has a purpose, and and the purpose is to identify us in this lifetime. And and the more that we can learn about how that algorithm works, and we do that, for instance, numerology and astrology and all these others then then it's amazing how true that story is and how much we know ourselves how much better we know ourselves and Indeed. and yes and so i think we need to treasure our birthdays more <laughs> yes i understand if you don't know joe friendly i'll have to introduce you to him but he's been speaking with me about this for years and it's not astrology that he's in love with, interestingly, but it is the date of birth. And he says some things very similar to you. And he's an engineer, interestingly. And uh, I'll have to make that introduction. I think you'll enjoy each other very right. much. Well, as you said well, earlier, there you. are mathematicians who would appreciate this a lot. Oh, I think so. I think so, yeah. definitely, definitely. Well, that's and, wonderful. And I really I'm, appreciate I'm working. I'm working with a friend of mine who is in in the program and by the way the program is free it's something that I don't always get to say um 
And this yes. is, people can sign Beautiful. up for this for free. And be oh, give in me it. your website while we're on the subject. Sure. Sure. It's Heart River, H-E-A-R-T, river.org, heartriver.org. And when they get to the site, all they have to do is click on where it says Learn About True Life Circles. And it will take them right to the page where they can sign up, put their name, email address, and birth date in it. And then I receive sure. that information, and then they're automatically in the program. And then the website also will keep people up to date on the, the transmissions each week. There will be five or six transmissions each week that people can find 10 minutes that work for them. Uh, and Wonderful. their birth date will be in my circles okay. anyway. We'll, we'll, so they no don't, pun intended, we'll circle around to these details afterwards so okay. people can uh, get in touch right. with you. But I very much appreciate that explication there, and it's really, really yeah, interesting. Yeah, and, and I, wa- I just wanted to say a, a friend of mine is yeah. working with number sequences uh, on cards that she uses to transform the quality of water, quality of air, quality of her environment. She actually can sleep better at night with these algorithms next to her bed or in the corners of her room. And uh, and there are many other ways that these, and there can be numbers that actually transform life. I know a man who is working with algorithms who uh, can transform consciousness uh, in the world, and uh, he um, he's very excited about. Um, it's like he said, it's like a, uh, a slingshot into the world of these algorithms that shift consciousness. Okay, and well, we'll he, come back to that, Peter. I yeah. very much appreciate your input. You know, just a. a little comment I'd like to make on what we all just heard from Peter Roth is that, uh, you know, for every number there's also a frequency, and for every frequency there's also a sound. So some people say that what we are really is truly a piece of music, and the thing that distinguishes us is the sound of our own music. And when all human beings are getting along and harmonious, we make a beautiful orchestra together. So uh, we'll come back around to that thought as well. And talking about sound and music, uh, Carol Beck, I'd love to just invite you on right now and to share with us these discoveries that you have made over time through your study of Hilarion. And uh, I have so enjoyed things that you have shared with me over the years, Carol, about my own (laughs) name, about other people's names, and uh, give us a little insight into this domain. Yeah, well, it's just a little bit different than numerology in the, in that it's the harmonic sound of the word, right? So of the letters mm-hmm. of the word, of the names. So you know, we think that our parents named us, but you know, my belief is that spirit comes and and we actually choose the names that we have issues to work on in this lifetime. Mm-hmm. And uh, so and so there's no judgment on it because we choose them. Uh, yes. So I guess I could give you, a, you know, a, some examples of that. Please. Would you like? Is that what you'd like to know? Oh, I would like that very much. Sure. All right. So in other words, if you come in, say, with a D, you know, the D is a heavy sound. It's like death, dying, depression, disease, disaster. And well, um, in English, so in English, who certainly. are marked with a D, say a David or uh, an Edward, when it's preceded by a vowel, it even increases that sound that you would have on both ends. 
And usually oh, there's an issue of aloneness okay. there, that they're not quite understood. I mean, David has a V in the middle, which is very hard working, but they also would have that uh, that sort of loneliness through childhood and even in their life, you know, as, as life proceeds. And, so you're saying, uh, and then Carol, you would have that the, a, a, of all of the letters in the alphabet, D itself signifies loneliness. Yes, yes. Okay, it, and it, is that anywhere in, words, in the name? it's an issue for you to look at in this lifetime. There's no judgment on it. We choose what it is that we have to work through in this lifetime. Oh, learning. I understand. It's it's like a, perhaps a karmic issue to be to be resolved, yes. to be uh, dealt yes. with. Yeah. I'm not talking about yes. any judgment, but I want to know. Yes. So D, does it make a difference where in the name it shows up as to its uh, its magnitude of power? Yes, it does, and especially when it's the first letter of your first name. And it's the name that's on your birth certificate, not what you're called. So we start oh, okay. really with the birth certificate because that's but you know, what the vibration that you come in with. That and uh, like a perfect example, that, let's just take a C, for instance. So you can have a C like Carol or Karen, or you can also have a C-H like Christopher, which is just like Carol, Karen. It's the hard C-K. Right yes. now, that's a round and open. You know, the C is round, the K is straight, and with open sound. So they, these are people who scatter, who have to know everything, have a great curiosity about everything that is. And then you can mm. have. So if you have a C, in other words, more curiosity than maybe a David would have. By oh, you uh, know, yes. to follow the logic. It's a different. It's a different kind of energy. It's a different scattering of energy. And then yes. you would have something like. A CH like Sharon. That's that's a CH, but it's an SH sound, which is right. the Jupiter. You know, sort of the guardian the angel. These sound. are people who always come out smelling like a rose. You know, even though life throws things at them, yeah. because they always have the protection. It's like the protection of the guardian <clears throat> angel on your shoulder. Mm. And then you have the CH, which would be like Charles, the ch sound, a Charles or Richard. Right? right, and that's that's always a sexual issue. So it's very interesting. I, I started with those two because I think if you just look at at like say Princess Diana, you know the lonely princess, her mother left when she yes. was a, a young child, and mm-hmm. uh, so she had that loneliness through life. And then when she was married, and then she's married to Charles, right, who had the sexual issue, already had things going on. And then uh-huh. if you look at William, the the son. The W is like church spires, and so mm-hmm. they're they're the, they're the believers. They're I mean he's like he has the and he not only that but he's William Arthur, so he has the potential to be the the knight. You know, it's the, almost the potential of Arthur and that whole mm. uh, of the Round Table coming back, right? I mean, he's the good mm-hmm. king. He's the good king. So it, it's that kind of thing that you can go through, and then. Uh, then you could also have a letter like, say, the F or the PH, which is Philip or Fred, would be the same vibration. And mm-hmm. and I've and I've done this now for about 20 years, and it, it, I know it works because people tell me, yes, absolutely, you know, it does. And so that yes. would mean that um, that all of their family, that all of the karma that they're working through in this lifetime comes through their families rather than coming through, you know, their friends or their work environment or whatever. So it starts at childhood that something is is uh, a kar- karmic issues, and then it usually 
follow through in their married life or whatever. Uh, mm, so, I could go on and on, you know, with all of the vowels. I mean, if you have the so M, like just Mitchell, to take a okay, step, so home is just like to, your anchor for the people who have M's. Okay. N is a li- little bit less positive than N, uh, than M, and uh, very often maybe parents got divorced or something, but home is still important, you know, there, but there's some kind of disruption. Mm-hmm. But Mitchell, or the M's for sure, and Mitchell, and then you have the T, which really gives you thrust. That's what T is about. Mm-hmm. And uh, if it, sometimes if you have a T that's preceded by an S, like a, a Stephen, that these are people who really do have the thrust to go out and do what it is they want to do in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's very interesting. Uh, you know, I've just done it for so many years with people. I learned this through Hilarion's uh, readings many years ago, and it just always interested me and so I, I really learned and I practiced everything that he talked about and mm-hmm. then I just said it worked, that it was really true, you know, because of the feedback so, that I would get from people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah. and the R, you know, is sort of a pleasure seeking part of the personality when people have the R. Uh you know, whatever they do. You mean they do sort of like them. like Raven? Yeah, well, that's a last name. See, last names are oh, family so karma. That's a different thing in the individual. <laughs> I am <laughs> pleasure-seeking, uh, Carol. Right, I mean, Maybe there's a hidden do, R in Mitchell. I mean, I'm a Carol, right, so I have it right in the middle. So we do an right, excess. Right, right. We well, you're a Taurus also. <laughs> too much. If you travel, you travel too much. You know, I mean, it's like it's a pleasure-seeking right. part of your Everything is excess. It's not just pleasure-seeking, it's excess. I got it. So just to take a step back, wait a minute, first of all, does it it does not apply to last names just first names yeah it it applies to first name because the last name is family karma, so you could work on that, but I will say that occasionally a name will will uh signify a whole issue, like in other words, a mark people who are named mark these are usually mm-hmm. people who are out to make their mark, and you find mm-hmm. that very often now that's Got about. It. Everything that I've described so far is about 85% of the case that this is true. Could you analyze, Carol, since we're on it, could you analyze the name Bruce? Bruce, okay. So the B, people that come in with the B are the kind of people who, if they walk into a social situation, uh, they wouldn't be like a Carol would walk right in and say, hi, you know, everybody be comfortable. The B will stand back and assess the situation because they've come off a lifetime of some kind of restriction. You know, I mean, they uh-huh. might have been a nun or they might have been a, a hospitalizer. You know, there's some kind of restriction there, and they have to learn in this mm-hmm. lifetime to put themselves forward more. So B starts with restriction. So that's what the Bs would be. And then Bruce would have, the, that would be the R, so there would be a pleasure-seeking part of the personality. And then you would yeah. have the U, and if you look at the U, it's like a cup. And very often these are people whose ideas get in that cup, and it's hard for them to, once they believe something, they believe it, and it's hard to get it out of the cup. Mm. You know, it's like that. Because just even looking at the formation of the letter. Yeah. And when people have the S in their name, that's another formation of the letter being it's up and down and up and down, and very often their lives are highs and lows, you know, just the way the S is formed. Like somebody named Sam or, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Right, right, right. But but when the S is just a modifier for the next valve, like a Steve, that's a different. That's yeah. just a modifier then. Oh. Okay. You see, for the okay. T. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
for the first time. Yeah. Very interesting. So it's like that. You know, it just depends very, upon how it very falls. Yeah. yeah. So in a sense. Yeah, but it's very interesting because it just just proves that there's nothing about us that's haphazard. Nothing. Yeah, I mean, right. everything is meant to right. be. And even we even are a number. Things. We are a sound. Indeed. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. I would just say that just to back off this and look at it sort of globally, if you will, it would be that there is a meaning for every letter in all words, including yeah. and maybe even especially the name that we have. And oh, yeah. this is reminding me very much of the Kabbalah and the understanding of the Hebrew alphabet because there's the same kind of kind of review and analysis that goes into an esoteric understanding of the Hebrew alphabet. It's exactly that. And there's another right. dimension to it. The other dimension is the visual dimension, which is, well, you did mention it, actually, with the U. If you look at each letter, it also mm -hmm. shows you its meaning. And then when you line the letters up together, they take on a new meaning as a combination. That's right. Does that resonate exactly. with you? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Pretty interesting, isn't yeah. it? It's awesome. Yeah, it so it really so gives... Because because again, if it's true, if that is the truth, it's going to be you're going to find the truth everywhere. Exactly. Right. I mean, exactly. in the Hebrew alphabet, and probably in Sanskrit, and probably you know what I'm as saying. As long as you're, as long as you're speaking and reading. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's true, Carol. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. I, I so have found, appreciate I that just input. One little quick thing, and I've just found that yeah. this has been very yeah. helpful for people, say, to understand their children, like when when groups oh, come yeah. here and. And I do the names of, you know, at some the of the Wyndham Retreat, yeah. Yeah, and they'll mm -hmm. ask about their children, for instance. And, and yeah. then they say, oh, oh, now I get it. You know, now I yeah. know why he or she is acting that way or, you know. Right. So now, you know, exactly. it helps them to understand. That's right. Really oh, definitely, definitely. It's a, it's a very practical tool. And so you could almost yeah. say this is a practical tool roundtable on metaphysics. So that's yeah. wonderful. Okay, good, good. Please stay on. Okay. We're going to come back well, around after Mary Ellen. Yeah, it is fascinating indeed. Let's it's let everybody wonderful. know you are listening to uh, A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin. We're on every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, and you can go to our website at www.abetterworld.tv, abetterworld.tv, in order to sign up for our weekly newsletter. It's free, it's informative, it lets you know who we're going to have on our weekly radio and TV shows. So get on and tune in and become part of a Better World family. So Mary Ellen McCabe, please, uh, I just had an awesome astrology reading with you again, and you never cease to amaze me at the level of intelligence and intuition that you bring to your readings. And... Uh, it's very much a mystical art, yet with a base, obviously, of mathematics to it. So it seems like it's an ongoing theme in today's roundtable. Could you share with us a little bit of the, of the premise of astrology and what, what you think our audience should know? Surely, and um, thank you. It, it kind of certainly connects with everything that Peter and Carol have uh, both said. Um, and... Um, for me, I mean, I began practicing in the late 70s, and I was just very interested in, um, 
you know, for me, my reason for practicing has to do with really, I think it's a map of the higher self or the mission this lifetime. And if um, read synthetically, um, it starts to, in the, it's really in the holistic synthesis that certain patterns come out in a chart. I My focus has been really in interpreting things such as grand crosses and T-squares and fingers of God because they many times are the focal part of somebody's mission. Um, and sometimes the sun or the moon or the rising is subsidiary to that as, impor- as important. Could you define what those are, the T-square, the grand cross, and the finger of God? Well, it can just be in, for example, I just did Mitchell's chart. So, um, he has Please, a- you <laughs> He has a finger of God to Chiron. Now, fingers of God are fated turning points. And even though his son is in Taurus and uh, his moon in Virgo, um, it's really what's been prominent in his mission is this Chiron is known as the wounded healer. Many times all of the flowering of the holistic healing movement that began in 1977 when when Chiron was uh, was discovered was um represents kind of this whole energy of many people where they are working either in the healing arts in you know in various ways either healing through education healing the environment healing you know healing through holistic types of practices both energy work as well as things like acupuncture or chiropractic work and then there's the healing of, you know, the psychological type healers that began. Certainly that's when all the Jungian work started really flowering, even though Jung certainly was doing his work earlier than that, and many people were, when it really hit more of the um, collective consciousness was in 1977. So, and that's interesting, is when I started doing what I'm doing. But... Um, it for me. It, that I've heard it said, Mary Ellen, <clears throat> that the effect of a planet, or even an asteroid for that matter, starts to show up in the collective consciousness of humanity once it's astronomically discovered. Yes, I mean Does other. That harmonize with your yes, absolutely, and it can people can be sensitive. I mean, Uranus always existed before the late. You know, 1700s or Neptune sure. before the night, but but, it, um, but it's but when it when it finally is discovered, it means that humanity is ready to work with that energy, so to speak. Yeah. And um, so, what happens with something that becomes focal, such as a finger of God, that that planetary energy, or in this case, it's a planetoid. Um, is a, a major emphasis of what that person is here to do. And in your case, it's as an example, it's in the sign of Capricorn, which is you are healing when it comes to you've always been such an avid environmentalist or all the various businesses that you've been trying to do that connect to environmental types of businesses, um, as well as the fact that you have been facilitating all of the holistic movement through your shows, um, through a better world, and uh, networking everybody all together um, so that we are more of a family and the brotherhood of man can be actualized. So all those are themes that wouldn't necessarily just come out in your sun sign or your moon for that reason. It's like a, it's a, um, it's focal. 
Um, so that's an example. Fingers of God are faded turning points that one is to actualize and many times go through a death and a rebirth about how to, you know, when their energy comes to another octave, so to speak. Um, in a T-square, it can be a focal planet. You can have whatever. You could have a focal Mercury, in which case you have a mission as a communicator um, or a teacher or an educator in some way um, or a writer. Uh, you could have a focal Mars, which is um, which has to do with really working with entrepreneurial energy and initiating energy. Uh, if you have a T-square that's with Mars, and they, many times the same planet that can be your gift to mankind can be your Achilles heel. So depending upon the maturity of how you use your will, and this is where nothing is absolutely fated, but there's energies of what we're predisposed to. How we use them is up to us in terms of our own consciousness. Um, if you're Buckminster Fuller and you have Uranus coming up to your son, uh, you might come up with a whole bunch of new inventions for the planet. If you are some teenager who's 15 years old and you have Uranus and your son, you might find that you're acting out a lot and uh, staying out really late and not listening to anything your mother or father want to have you do. So it's really the level of consciousness determines how the energy will get used or either constructively or destructively. Um, but, you know, all of this is just part of, again, um, you know, the, the, for me it's like a map of the higher self and how we can actualize that higher self. Um, I was, in the early days, it, uh, you know, I was able to be around a lot of the, the goodest, the, the older astrologers were still alive then, and there weren't that many people that were even doing it in the 70s. Um, and um, But a lot of them came out of the esoteric tradition, especially of theosophy, um, and, um, you know, and then they gravitated to combining it with Jungian type of thinking. Certainly that's true of Dane Rudyard and, um, and many of the, you know, uh, Mark Edmund Jones, and he, you know, worked a lot also with the Sabian symbols that I, I very much respect. So these are things that have been, you know, all of this astrology has been built, but it began to turn once the Jungian um, and psychosynthesis energy started to uh, come in with the esoteric, it became a lot of astrologers then started combining, uh, you know, a... A, a humanistic approach to astrology as opposed to a more fatalistic approach that used to be much more true at the turn of the century, for example. And this this really was Rudyard, who, you know, really was, was a theosophist. And um, my own background is with the esoteric teachings of the Brotherhood from theosophy as well as from Agni Yoga. So... Um, uh, my the Nicholas and Helen Rorick were were theosophists that then also were working with the same master Master Moria and Master Kudhumi that worked with um, Blavatsky. So um, um, these um, you know these things are really important. In fact, Mitchell, earlier you were talking about all the quantum physics. But really, you know, the one book that Einstein kept on his desk was Blavatsky's Secret Doctrine because she was talking about the atom 
way ahead of even, you know, him or there was another scientist right before him um, in the late, you know, in the late 1890s. Um, and it was really her understanding from the really the instructions from the Brotherhood that led to what she was talking about with science at that point in the 19th century was still very mechanical. And she was really talking about how space, she was called crazy. The scientists at that time used to think she was totally nuts. But now we know with cell phones and everything else that uh, she was saying, no, there's no empty space. It's, it's Space is alive. It's all one big frequency that's just, you know, mm. if you knew, it's just totally, um, it has, it's not, it's not at all what you're, you know, what you're saying. And it may appear as empty space, and but it, empty it is not. Right, and Blavatsky, you know, was saying, and the master said to her that they won't really understand the secret doctrine for at least 100, 150 years. And that's, you know, finally what we really, many things, many things that we now take for granted, both with science as well as in all the, you know, mutual uh, respect for various religious traditions. Um, we're really, we're really initiated by the secret doctrine and by a lot of those people that came after her. That started. I mean, all of the Tibetan Buddhist texts came out through Theosophists initially. Um, all of the, you know, respect for ancient wisdom, Kabbalistic work. Um, and, you know, because it was Christianity at that point was pretty chauvinistic, thinking it was the, you know, the most important thing. And she was not, and many people feel also she was anti-Christianity. She was anti-churchianity, as she put it, um, but, and really was somebody that was much more interested in, in how all of these religious thoughts, because the masters through her were trying to bring about, in Isis Unveiled, a way in which... Um, we would have tolerance that we their biggest mission was to help build brotherhood and certainly spiritual tolerance um, and really recognizing the roots of things um, were part of what was done both with Isis unveiled as well as the secret doctrine anyway my lineage comes out of that and um, appreciate that okay. and that's uh, it's very elucidating for people to put a lot of the spiritual trends and values into some historical perspective from the work of Blavatsky and others. And others, but to appreciate it to. and to yeah. really understand that there are, and people, when she, she was slandered, she was, still she's slandered, but I mean, you know, the, just the things that people went through to bring out these new oh, ideas yeah, are, are for me, always oh. a very, very... Um, that includes Bruno, uh, and that includes absolutely. Galileo. So absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's a... Again, we get we see a bit of a blurring between what we call science and religion and metaphysics over the course of history. Yes. You know, uh, just a, a note, and then I want to come back around to Peter and Carol before we wind up here. Sure. Uh, <clears throat> that in autobiography of a yogi is reference to the atom. So in ancient Vedic India, yes, there was an understanding of the atom that right. is not altogether unlike what emerged again later in the early 20th century. Well, I mean, what Blavatsky was bringing out was the Vedic teachings from yep. the rishis. Right. And that's what's in the secret doctrine. That's so. Right. Okay. Mary Ellen, thank you so much for that. Surely. really very, very interesting, and we'll be back with you in a few moments 
to discuss Francis Bacon, which is another interesting turn of the wheel. Uh, Peter, you've been listening to a lot here, and I know that you're going to be doing a, a circles gathering very soon, so I wanted to come back to you first here as we come to a conclusion. Absolutely. Um, any final thoughts you'd like to share with the audience after having heard yourself and uh, Carol Comer and Mary Ellen McCabe? Well, I think all of well, our and minds are swimming. Are, all of our minds are swimming right now from the great information that we've just been given. It's uh, a very yeah. fascinating show, so I want to thank you for that. Absolutely, um, absolutely. And, thank you so much for being part of it, and I want to just encourage you to keep up the good work. You know, you've been a, a leader in New York City for so long, Peter, since we met and. The early, early, early 90s, or maybe even 1990 itself, and it's been such a pleasure and honor to know you and be participating in one way or another with your, with your evolution. It's really been well, beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, I do have sure. to do a circles transmission at seven, and it's about eight up. Give right your now, website so. one more time for people to tune in. Yes, it's Heart River H E A R T River dot org, and the program is called True Life Circles. And just click on that uh, on the front page that you come to, and you can sign up for the free program. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. And very also, Peter. Uh, your, uh, mention your radio show, Energy Stew, as well, when people yes. can tune in. Energy Stew airs uh, on Saturdays at noon, but all the shows are archived, and I've been on weekly for seven years now. So there right. are a lot of shows, <laughs> and you can just... Scroll through them and look for the, you know, read about each show and decide which subject matter you'd like to hear more about. Exactly. Great In fact, authors. I'm on there a few times myself. Yeah. yeah I, I, <laughs> I interview fantastic authors and people doing beautiful work, and um, and it's it's an exciting show. I love it. It's it's a great love yep. of my life. It really is. That show. It so really thank is. you. I want Wonderful. to thank you for uh, getting me on the, your show and. Uh, you do a great sure. job, and I always love to hear you. Thank you so much, Peter. <laughs> Bye, Peter. Thank okay. you so much for your Bye. For joining Bye-bye. Us. Thank you all for Bye-bye. your Bye-bye. sharing. <laughs> okay. Keep circling. <laughs> Keep circling around the numbers. <laughs> okay. Carol Comer. Pretty interesting yeah, stuff, Yeah, so I've huh? already written heartriver.org down. <laughs> oh, yeah. Definitely. Oh, you that should. Was very interesting. <laughs> And also Peter was Mary a student Ellen. of ours. Oh my goodness! You have such Peter a wealth was a of information. Student of, uh, oh, no, all awesome. of uh, good. I never Carol. really thought. No, uh, you know, I know the basics in all of astrology, but those orbs or whatever. I mean, it was uh, the yodes. Well, the, the key cross, the grand cross. Uh, oh my goodness! The finger yeah, that's, of and God I'm just around these astrologers a lot, but I haven't heard anybody emphasizing that before. So that was new. Isn't that fabulous? <laughs> well, it's really yeah. destiny. It's, it's kind of yeah. derived from the higher mathematics of the relations of the planet in a more the planets in a holistic way, so it's it's kind of tel- tends to give a synthesis there. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Carol, I want to just thank you so much for being on today and sharing with us your words of wisdom about the importance of sound and the vibration of the sound as they show up in the name. It's beautiful yeah. work. Yeah. It's really oh. beautiful work. I want to just. Thank well, I learned so much through all of this, and now I can't wait to listen Good. to Mary Ellen.
on, on oh, well, right. Carol, I really I really look forward to hearing more. I'm going to go in and check out those hilarious um, you know, cuz hilarious. Yeah, and we have we have some guests here, so I'm going to bring it down and put it on speaker so everyone can Wonderful. hear at the dinner table. That sounds great. <laughs> Carol, yeah. uh you and Hugh <laughs> run the Wyndham Retreat. Do you have a contact um number or uh email address that you'd like people to get in touch well, with? Well, it's, it's H Colmer. My husband is Hugh. It's H Colmer at yahoo.com. That's the That's best way to reach That's easy enough. Us. H Colmer, yeah. C O L M E R at yahoo.com in a beautiful 17 bedroom house with seminar space and an amazing living room that the vibes can't be beat and the cooking don't begin. Oh, <laughs> Forget about it. I, I, I know it well. And I testify. I testify, exactly. It's a great place for anybody. i get your information as soon as this is over. Okay. I'll be listening wonderful. to you Carol, too. thanks so much for joining us and for all of your valuable wonderful. input. Great. And now we're continuing. And my best to Hugh. Me God too. Bless. Send my love to Hugh, Carol. Oh, will do. He's listening. <laughs> Bye-bye now. So he's on the Great. other phone. Excellent. Bye-bye now. Okay, well, we'll keep listening for Marianne, Mary Ellen now. Okay, very good. Okay. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye, Carol. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. Thanks so much for joining us. That was our first portion of today's show. We will be doing an extended show today so we can delve into what I referred to before, which is the material regarding Francis Bacon. Was he Shakespeare? Who else may he have been? We'll be looking at those questions in a moment. I just want to remind you all that if you are not yet um, a uh member of a better world through our newsletter please do go to our website at www.abetterworld.tv a better world that's what we're all about you know we use the media radio tv i write for the huffington post the entire matter is up for grabs now folks it's all up to us what we're going to do in reshaping our world as we see because of Pluto in Capricorn to continue the astrological theme. All systems, all institutions are melting just like the Wicked Witch in The Wizard of Oz. That witch does not stand in its own integrity, is being challenged inwardly and outwardly. Look at the Catholic Church, the Vatican. Look at governments across the world. Look at the Arab Spring. Wherever we cast our eyes, we see a similar phenomenon where there is not integrity, where there is not honor, where there is not virtue. There is crumbling. And some people can get very uh, disturbed and upset by that and say, oh, my God, you know, the sky is falling. Run for the hills. Or we can say there are no hills like that to there's no escape what there is is an opportunity to rebuild just like the classic ideogram from the chinese of crisis being equaling opportunity this is our chance for those of us who have sort of been waiting for this moment to occur where we can go back into the sandbox and build the kind of world we always really dreamed of as children the kind of Shangri-La, the kind of Shambhala, if you will, 
the kind of world where people are truly good to one another, laugh a lot, play a lot, create a lot, and also are always looking out for one another. Simple stuff, but highly imaginative. And we can have a world like that, and many of us are doing what we can to envision and create it. So that's the kind of stuff we do here at A Better World, and I invite you all to participate. And on that note, we'll be taking the next 30 or 40 minutes or so to speak with Mary Ellen McCabe, who among her many attributes and many skills and talents, she has been a vast researcher and astute studier of the work of Francis Bacon, uncovering many esoteric texts really taking the job seriously to bring more truth to light. So on that note, I have invited her to speak with our audience today to learn more about what this whole endeavor is, who is Francis Bacon, <laughs> Mary Ellen. <laughs> well, it's interesting um, in what you just said about a better world uh, and the envisioning of that world or bringing the – Shambhala to, to the, the kingdom of heaven on earth, because that's really what was his mission in diverse ways. Um, he really, there was a, a prophecy that Paracelsus had um, given that when there was... The going, great alchemist. The great, yeah. And Paracelsus said, uh, there will be a being coming shortly after me who will bring three treasures from And he was in the 16th century? Yes. He, well, he, yes. And uh, Paracelsus, I think, was about 12 years before. I mean, or anyway, he was earlier than Francis Bacon, but he said when there was a particular, the star of Cassiopeia would show up, and this would be a sign that there would be a great being who, would, who was on the earth who was going to bring three treasures to mankind. And um, so, anyway, if Francis Bacon, we study, you know, and everybody thinks he's just, you know, a, a, sort of a boring philosopher, and, you know, he was the father of the Industrial Revolution, is what your history books say. But he was actually the, the founder of Freemasonry and Rosicrucians, you know, during the 16th century to bring about, really, the whole democracy movements that started all through Europe and certainly had a big effect on philosophically creating America. If you would, give a little sketch, a biographical sketch of the Francis Bacon that we know through our history books. Well, in the history books, a quick it's, little you know, well, anyway, it's just, if you, you know, think about Francis Bacon, it's mostly with essays and as a philosopher, um, you know, and and they say English he's born. A, and he's yes, and he's the English um, born. But he really was had a whole like secret life that was necessary. What comes out in where? What? Ha, uh, let me just first of all start with. For me, I've been a Baconian since probably my early twenties. The story's been following me around that long. And um, and it really was first introduced to me through Manley Hall. Manley Hall wrote a book called the you know the spiritual destiny of America. And at the time, I was um, I was just in my early twenties, and I was part of a kind of really then was a hippie think tank in Colorado uh, where Rennie Davis was planning on doing an alternative presidential campaign. And my in that. One of my roles was I was researching all like kind of the esoteric bases of America, and that's how I 
first discovered this story, Manley Hall talks about it and talks about the role of Francis Bacon as being somebody that was really bringing about the whole idea of the brotherhood of man and and really uh, in the New Atlantis is really a utopian idea that is, if you read it, it's very similar to the Rosicrucian Manifesto. Um, the same images are used. I mean, um, it's very, you know, it's it's curious. And so the there was a, a scholar, um, um, Mrs. Constant Potts, that was discovering the ways in which he was actually working with this Rose Cross. It started out as a literary society and then spread from there. And they used the markings of what the Templars originally used. Um, John Dee knew Francis Bacon because Francis Bacon was doing code work even as a teenager. Tell us who John D is. All right, well... We cannot assume <laughs> that our audience I'm sorry. Knows. I'm so sorry. Uh, I'm this like, is you what know... Happens. No, no. Uh, but, but I do need you to define who these folks are for our audience who may not know. Well, John D was uh, one Queen Elizabeth's astrologer. Um, he had the largest library. He had bigger than Cambridge or Oxford at that time. Not that many people had books, and he had four... 4,000 books, and he was able to collect all of the ancient wisdom, really. And But he was also a great mathematician. I mean, Elizabeth was able to, uh, or England was able to become master of the seas because he created all the maps um, that, were, that, you know, Drake used and so on. And um, so the explorers were able to, and Raleigh, you know, Walter Raleigh, so that the whole... You know, um, John Dee was was just a you know was this great um, alchemist, really, and mathematician as well as an astrologer. Um, and so of course, these kinds of people populated the courts back then because it was understood by royalty how valuable oh, yeah. their sacred arts were. I mean, metaphysical arts I mean yeah, Elizabeth was very much into the occult arts, as well as Lester, um, Lord Lester, who was her um, what what I you know what comes out in my belief system of according to my research had been her her husband actually, and um, and so that um, sounds controversial. Well, it is somewhat, but most scholars now have been researching the extent to which, and it's even coming out in the movies, the way that the Virgin Queen definitely had a, a very, that he was definitely, they call him the consort, um, you know, and um, and so they don't, I you know, that the Virgin Queen is more in the way that, uh, you know, the representing the true meaning of what Virgin meant, which is holding uh, sort of the goddess, one within her own self, but Some not purity. But well, I don't know how pure she was. But I, <laughs> well, that is the original meaning. Well, no, I in think Latin it, it is. Well, in, I mean, it may have gotten going in that direction, but originally, you know, virgin was one within oneself. In other words, they they are a woman within their own being, not not. Um, uh, it didn't mean that you you never you never did it. <laughs> I wasn't talking about that. <laughs> That's not what I meant. Anyway, but anyway, please. Uh, anyway, and that archetype of her coming out that way was actually um, encouraged by John Dee because it, John Dee was very influenced by the Arthurian legend, and he very much felt that part of what was which certainly 
the Elizabethan era through, um, w- you know, and all of the tournaments and stuff was to reestablish in a, in a way the chivalric, the sh- you know, the, the age of chivalry or those codes. So, um, you know, the Tudors, I mean, Henry VIII did it before him, but it was really, it really came to a greater flowering, certainly under Elizabeth, which was, and he was saying, you know, if you, she was a Virgo, so if you hold the goddess, uh, the virgin queen, so to speak, it's, you know, um, it, it will hold that archetype for England because, Previous to that, no woman had ever led England. I mean, any woman, and one of the reasons why she kept... Let's go back. Let's go back anyway, to Francis Bacon. Anyway, yeah, I'm Bacon. sorry. Yeah. I don't mean You're to going do that. off a little bit. I'm going off, but... I want to bring you back to Francis Bacon. Okay, sorry. And let's look at it. It's okay. You know, you're, you're so ensconced in it that you need someone to hold your hand through it. I'm very sorry. My audience, I forgive me. I just... that. But if you would... One of the interesting themes that emerges in a more esoteric study or a second look at Francis Bacon is this whole subject of was he Shakespeare? Okay. Could you discuss that and then we can go Absolutely. anywhere from there? Absolutely. I mean, I very much feel he is from research and all of that, but that's the, the, the key of that. The key of that is the fact that what comes out when I what let me just tell you something about myself um, in two thousand and seven, I had this clairvoyant woman come into my life who was telling me that there's anyway she came in and she basically said there's a man standing behind you <laughs> and with a quill pen to give to you of a story that needs to be told and then she's she's an empath so she kind of went in and she said she started getting very you know, um, like uh, she said, and it was like she almost cried. She said, it's a very sad story. And then she described it as being like it has an inner and an outer layer. Well, for the next, basically from till 2013, I've gotten continual message connected to a story that reveals Francis Bacon having been the son of Queen Elizabeth, who was unacknowledged, and Lester, Lord Lester, was his father, and so he wrote. He wrote under masks. He bought the names, and it's not just Shakespeare. It's Marlowe as well, which is a very interesting thing because many people are wondering why is it that there's phrases in Shakespeare that are also within Marlowe. Why are um, they so similar? Why are in so they many so ways? similar? Why are the same? Um, you know that that kind of thing, and it's it reveals that there's a mask. Um, there's that he bought these names. What comes out in there's a ciphered story of his life that was discovered in the late 1900s. It first came out through a Dr. Orville Bowen, um, if anybody wants to read it themselves, and Elizabeth Gallup, who was kind of working with him. And what she did was she took the, in one of Francis Bacon's essays, he wrote the De Augmentis, which included a cipher code called the biliteral cipher. And at that time, ciphers were used, every prince had their cipher, so to speak. Um, it was necessary uh, because of all that was going on, and it was, be, you know, they would, anyway, they all wrote in code at that time. But he was an expert in ciphers and was used um, even as a teenager in France to 
to decode certain things of Mary Queen of Scots uh, uh, correspondence and so on for for Elizabeth. Um, so he got fascinated. It was like these learning codes became all of a sudden um, like the key that he could start writing his secret story, and he embedded it into all of Shakespeare. And that's one of the reasons why in the original folios, the fonts, in the original folios, the fonts change. And there'll be certain italicized letters at certain spots, and then all of a sudden there's a capital letter somewhere. And, you know, they thought it was, oh, the printers at that time. But actually he was in charge of, of what he would have printed out. And he did it deliberately so that this code could be discovered at some point where his story of what he went through and in a sense wanting to reveal a true history of what happened and what her, you know, what to himself, to the reign and, you know, and, and also what he really, you know, was attempting to um, envision. I mean, you see in the ciphered, thing, you know, this, he should have been the intended king, and he very much had this idea of what he could do as a king for, to be a wise, you know, like build the brotherhood of man, and um, so for him, then he, when he was denied that, he, in a secret way, set it all up. Um, if you look at a lot of the Shakespeare plays, there's constant references that are actually Masonic in nature. And he first started out with a group he called the Knights of the Helmet. And he called it that because he took Athena as his muse, Athena who would shake the spear against ignorance. And Athena, of course, wore the helmet of invisibility. So all of these Masons at that time, as well as then with the Rosicrucians, became, um, they all had to, to go with anonymity and just kind of do the work and almost commit themselves to a certain um, idealistic code to help build, really, the brotherhood of man. Um, Is there a particular play of Shakespeare's, Bacon's, that would have told the truth of the relationship between Queen Elizabeth, Lester, and him more explicitly um it's it more comes out in the in the code because he you know he was very and he spread it out it wasn't just in shakespeare i mean it was other he had a group called the good pens and they were a lot of um people from gray's inn he was a lawyer at gray's inn he was forced into law he couldn't stand law and you know some scholars started to think of him as kind of a dour kind of character that was sort of you know uh very uh but he was not he was he was in charge of the the gray's inn revels um you know which were the the revels is how they they did the theater for the court all the time um he was but through gray's inn um, where he was forced into law by Francis Bacon. Francis Bacon was, and he was actually kept kind of in poverty by her. I mean, he would, she would, in fact, she paid she being the queen. She paid for his education, which you know, if you if you research, you see that well, this is a very odd. Why does she pay for his education? You know, um, she, even though he was raised, he was adopted by Nicholas and and Lady Anne Bacon, and um, and that's. And what comes out in the cipher story is he finds out when he's 16 under very traumatic circumstances 
um, in actually one of Elizabeth's, Elizabeth's rages, you know, that he in fact is her child. And at that point she curses him and says, you know, but you'll never for doing what you've done, you'll never, you know, you'll never get to the throne. And she stayed true to that the whole time. Um, what was her, it that he did? Um, she, he, he actually, she was, I don't want to, you want me to go into that? Well, I want to give some sense if you're going to okay. give some um, idea. I, what had happened was he was, again, he was at, he was one of the courtiers. She used to like to keep him around. He was extremely brilliant and precocious. I mean, he was known even as a young kid. I mean, he, a, a lot of, a lot of people were trained with lots of languages at that time, but he, he just excelled at them. He, um, and even he went to Cambridge when he was 14, um, and he just took all – he committed at that point to take all of knowledge as his domain. And his real interest was in starting kind of an academy. Um, he was very influenced by what happened in the French Renaissance. He went to France at one point. He was banished there, and that's where he became – uh, very aware of what was going on with the Pleiades, which were starting this French Renaissance based upon doing classical literature, but in their own language. And that had never been done before. So he took that idea and he brought it to England. Philip Sidney was one of his friends and Gabriel Harvey, a lot of the sort of the literate of that time, they all like decided to kind of become good pens together and begin getting translations. And really they started in Elizabethan literature that first was poetry and translations of great classics that England didn't have at that point. And then also then it led into drama eventually. Um, but there's a number of people. He had what's called the good pens, which were, you know, uh, they were called the university wits, where they sometimes he bought their names. Ben Johnson was a good friend of his who wrote his own work. But Ben Johnson himself, even in Sejanus, says one greater than I, you know, has written <laughs> this. He would take on their names. He would take on their as names. A as a front, he bought their, in the case of Marlowe, he bought his name. And Marlowe was, uh, he got to know because he was a spy working for Anthony in France. You know, he was sent by Walsingham, and Marlowe would, was, um, Anthony was, uh, was working for Walsingham and was in What about the concrete um, pregnancy of the Queen? How was that kept hidden? Well, you know, there's, it's an interesting, there's even painting, there's a painting <laughs> that I discovered of her actually with child. And a lot, of, a lot of rumors came out. I mean, there's actually in the British Museum, um, and whoever started to talk about the fact that she had children um, ended up having their tongues uh, cut out. They were, you know, one person had their head cut off. They were imprisoned. And so there's a there's a record of that. There's a there is a record um, of her, and there were rumors of that time, and then of course anybody where it came out, then it was immediately squelched, um, because um, <laughs> she certainly didn't want to tarnish the you know the so virgin who queen. was thought to be his parents. Nicholas Bacon and Lady Anne Bacon. Oh, so they did. it and wasn't they, recognized as an adoption, but as... Well, they did adopt him. I mean, they did... They did adopt him, but was she pregnant during those nine months prior to she, the day 
way he said to have been born? Well, Lady Anne Bacon actually had a stillborn birth, and so they just kind of, and Lady Anne Bacon was one of the Queen's attendants. She actually was kind of there as helping with the physician. She was, and Nicholas Bacon, of course, his his adopted father was the chancellor. And, you know, she would regularly visit in Gorhambury where, you know, they had their home. Um, I mean, she ha- would have the child brought to the court a lot. And nobles kind of, you know, people... So do you think that it was an inside story that she knew and the Queen knew exactly? They all knew. So it was all known. In fact, Nicholas Bacon, what comes out in the cipher is that yes. Nicholas Bacon actually was the person that that conducted their marriage ceremony. So they all knew. They were part of it, but they were sworn to, you know. The conducted qu- whose Nicholas ceremony? Bacon, the, the, the marriage ceremony between Lord Lester and Queen Elizabeth. Oh, Okay, Um, which was, and, you know, the the scandal about it all was why Elizabeth was so needing to keep this hush-hush. Well, there was a number of factors. One is her own desires not to have to share her rule, because if she has a husband, um, you know, queens were not accepted. Lord Lester would have been the king. He would have been the main attraction. Even if he were just married into the line. yeah. He was married yeah. into. And because okay. they were unused to, the mentality was unused to a woman being in that position. Sure. And having her own background with her own family and, you know, Henry and, and having her mother have her head cut off by Henry and all that, she was, you know, she, she was, was somebody. She was a little nervous. Well, she wanted to keep her power. Yeah. Um, she and was the, probably also a little nervous at thought of her own head right. going in that same direction. But also there are reasons having to do with, you know, um, Anyway, I, this is. I just hope this isn't getting a little bit off. This is well, getting. I'm trying in. to keep you on. If you stick with me, I will ask okay. the questions to keep you on. So now, tell us a little bit about who was William Shakespeare. Well, William, and what is his relationship to William, Bacon? William Shakespeare, which is actually you know, there's different spellings. Right. Um, was you are. S H no S H A X P U R. Um, was uh, was actually somebody that that worked in low level departments, of, so to speak, of of um, of, uh, of a company that Marlowe you know, was associated with. It was um, you know, and he took he did take care of the horses mm-hmm. and did you know do prop things and things like that. And when they needed to find a name. They would just go, you know, and they felt like no fool could possibly. That's why, you know, uh, false staff, you know, false staff, you know, uh, it's foolish. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was somebody who is had no education. And, I mean, if you read biographies of William Shakespeare these days, you'll see it's, it's littered with conjecture about, oh, he must have done this, and he must have traveled to... Uh, Europe uh, in order to get around those court circles, and he must have done this and that, and he must have done this and that. I mean, there's a great essay, essay that Mark Twain does um, uh, uh, called Is Shakespeare Dead? And um, it, it goes through the actual facts of what we know about William Shakespeare, um, the, you know, who who the mediocre actor i mean and also scholar in scholarly circles also like even you look at hemmings and you know um burbage and all of that when they listed who was really 
important actors at the time, his name is not even there. So all of the conjecture of him being this great actor and he was a great this and that. Now they bought his name, all right, and then he was given, he, he insisted on getting a coat of arms because he wanted to kind of gentrify himself. And then, you know, they, in a way, they, he extorted money from them, it's, you know, like to try and like keep, keep it, keep him paid, which is all of a sudden he goes from having nothing and all of a sudden he's buying a house in Stratford. So but then again, essentially royalty was buying his name. So there was going to be a fee for it. Well, he, yeah. I mean, the first amount of, there's a thousand pounds that were given to him. And the interesting thing is by Southampton, but it was through Anthony Bacon that it was delivered. Oh, if you, you know, go into the, this is what actually happened. Right. So, um, and, we, and we have documentation of this. There is documentation, yeah. And Why then is there such a question as to who Francis Bacon is relative to Shakespeare? Because there's a whole, you know, people are very, they don't want, they want Shakespeare, the, to Shakespeare they want him to be this cocaine who came from nowhere, who, who, who somehow had the genius to write, which doesn't lessen the genius of what Shakespeare is, it just is to really look at who it is. I mean, William Devere is another person that people think of is possibly a, a contender. But when you really look at, well, for me, what I want to get back to is the fact that when this clairvoyant woman came into my life, I, she started saying certain things. I didn't know that this ciphered biography existed. I was a Baconian, but I was very much more interested in the spiritual destiny of America mm. and the ways that Bacon masterminded the English colonization plan. I was very interested in the Masonic basis of America and really the, the founding fathers. Well, you wrote and, that great play, musical, actually, you know, I, about it. Yeah, yeah, and my whole... I, I'm also a musician, and I, for many years, that's what I was doing in, in colleges and high schools was this show on um, the spiritual destiny of America that started out. I once played a role in one, yes, of, the, you did, uh, right. <laughs> one of your ventures. So um, anyway, that was my strength, and I thought, you know, I knew he was Shakespeare, but it didn't, I wasn't so much That into, wasn't your That wasn't my point. focal point. And then when this woman came into my life, she started telling me that there was a story to be revealed. Now, she started saying, she gave me this whole, re and at first it was very cryptic, and I was thinking, well, I don't, I don't have a clue what this is about, but, uh, you know, uh, I'll, I'm open, and so, you know, I'm supposed to be given a pen, I'm supposed to write something, and, and I'm a songwriter, but I never, <laughs> I never had any interest in, I wasn't, my husband's a screenwriter and playwright, but I was, you know, not, that wasn't, where I found my, I was, I was focused, you know, I wasn't doing that. And then it became, there's a story that has an inner story and an outer is what she said. And that she saw this person and he, it was like, it was like seeing, she said, it's very like, looks kind of renaissance. And, and it's very frustrating because when it goes into the printer, the fonts change. And then I'm going, what? You know, and I'm looking, I'm, I'm looking up symbols of fonts, what it means. And about a week later, I'm reading this Lawrence Gardner book, um, who was a Masonic scholar. And I'm reading it. I'm thinking, why am I reading this? I, you know, I'm like, because it was sort of a little bit heady. It was the um, it was the one on masonry. It wasn't the one on Mary Magdalene. It was um, 
it was the I can't even remember it right now. But he talked. It, I literally come across a paragraph where he says, and Francis Bacon, who was Shakespeare, wrote originally in a font that has been changed around when it went into the later presses. And I went, oh my God. And so here she was getting this message. I didn't know anything about intellectually, all right? She certainly didn't know because she's she doesn't have she's a clue. She's just picking it up. She from just the ether. is getting. She was just somebody used for to give me an information, yeah. basically, who doesn't really have the intellectual background to know what the symbols even mean. And it became like it's been like I've been in my own little version of the Da Vinci Code because mm. it's like things will come that are cryptic about. Um, certain Masonic symbols that that I, you know, and I mean, I to me the Masons nowadays are just an old boys' network. I mean, they do certain good things, and I'm sure there's esoteric Masons somewhere. But it's, you know, it's it's a good maybe it's good that it, but it's basically something at the time when he was doing it. It was a My vital. My grandfather was a Mason. Yeah, but it was vital at that point, representing new ideas to build the Brotherhood of Man. And, you know, when you think of something like what... Um, it had a mission that got diluted. It had a mission that got diluted, but it but it continued doing its mission for a good period of time. Well, some say it continues, but that might be fewer and farther. Yeah, between. or it may be esoter- people that are esoterically connected to it, such as Scottish Rite and so on. So, you know, basically what we're hearing here, Mary Ellen, is that there's... Uh, even a preponderance of evidence that really shows that Shakespeare was Francis Bacon. And that Francis Bacon also used the names of Marlowe and Ben Jonson and, as you said, the group of good pens to convey his message. How did he find out and when did he find out about his being the child of Elizabeth. Oh, so you want me to go into that story? Yeah. Okay. When he he was a courtier who had, you know, was just very bright, and Elizabeth used to keep him around. So you were saying. Right? And um, at one point, she um, there was Robert Cecil was kind of his nemesis, if you or it was his like dark force in his life. And uh, the name Cecil in Latin means blind. Oh, well, you know, Richard III is kind of based upon Cecil. He was hunchback. He was deformed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, the actual, you know, anyway, he, he, that play is really about Richard Cecil. And um, he, um, he was, he's actually a cousin to, you know, to Anthony Bacon, and in this case, uh, you know, Francis thought he was a Bacon, so they were cousins, but he was extremely jealous. Francis and Anthony were very bright, were very attractive people, they were magnetic, they had a lot of friends. Robert Cecil was really somebody who was really ugly, actually, and deformed and small, and he was smart, but in that malicious kind of sense. And um, he, what comes out in the cipher is really that um, that at one point uh, he informs maliciously to one of the Queen's ladies um, about Francis Bacon being the bastard child. And this was like a really secret that nowhere should go. And then all of a sudden this maid starts, 
you know, gossiping about it. And then Robert Cecil to set her up because this this lady in waiting was kind of mocking him. She was kind of forced to dance with with him, and all of them are like mocking him because he was he was they they didn't want to go near him. He was so disgusting to them. And um, as you know, young women can be. And so they start gossiping, and the queen overhears it. And she starts literally going to practically kill this young girl. I mean, strips in the Cypher story, what comes out is like she literally stripped her naked and started like beating her. And he, everybody's like in the story, what comes out in the Cypher story is that everybody was just so silent. And at one point he couldn't bear to see it any longer. And he intervened, you know, on behalf of let me, you know, try and, you know, Francis himself. Francis himself as a young man did, and everybody else was standing there, and the queen, the queen and, and the queen himself. got f- furious mm-hmm. at him at doing that to the queen. I mean, really what comes out is Queen Elizabeth, talk about a narcissistic, dark mother um, who was really all of the classic narcissistic qualities of loving the adoration and, you know, uh, being driven and, and bright, but really having, like, no consciousness or empathy and certainly anything. I mean, even her way of when she did like him, she appreciated him because he was just so off the charts and brilliant and, you know, uh, as narcissistic mothers frequently can be with their children, not really loving authentically them or being nurturing or supportive. So at that point is when he was banished to kind of quiet everything down because it all came out to lots of people. And it was like this unspoken um, thing that certainly probably people in her privy council knew about, but it was hush-hush, and you certainly didn't speak about it. Even though it was actually quite common, Lester was always, you know, was right next to her bedroom. It was quite obvious to all the, you know, all the... The insiders. The insiders knew, for sure. And a lot of... It was being made... A step more public. Yeah, and so he was then banished to France, and in France is where. Even, oh, so that's when he got. That's banished. when he got banished, but he was still because he was used. He was so smart, especially and mathematically, um, you know, with codes, he was used. But also in in that capacity, he was sort of working under the ambassador. So he was then brought into, you know, Marguerite of Navarre and Navarre. He got to know Navarre very well, um, you know, and all that was going on with the Huguenots. You know, this was about seven years after the whole St. Bartholomew's, you know, day when when all the Huguenots no, were slaughtered. No, you've got to explain Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> this is French. You're being esoteric to the esoteric. I'm sorry. This is French history. Okay. But yeah. anyway. the but the, just give a little taste of it. You don't have right. to elaborate. I mean, the important thing at that totally. point, spiritually speaking, was the issue between the Catholics and the Protestants. And the Huguenots, of course, were the Protestants. And there was a lot of control that was being taken place politically as well as spiritually in terms of inquisitions by the Catholic Church at that time. Um, And so this was the whole beginning of the whole Protestant Reformation and starting people being free to, like, read the Bible in their own way, not be be controlled by a church or by priests and so on. And and also, though, there was political ramifications. Churchianity, as you said earlier. Yes, yeah. And so, um, so, but the French... Um, you know, Catherine de' Medici, of course, was part of the Catholics and part of the Pope, 
but um, but she deliberately had her daughter marry Navarre, who was the head of the Protestants. But then at their marriage, had all the Huguenots came out, and then they had a secret plan where they slaughtered them all. So that's St. Bartholomew's Day. Anyway, Francis um, became quite close to Marguerite of Navarre. And Navarre himself was a great political leader, but he had, even though Marguerite was beautiful, he had, he had many, many affairs, and the last thing he wanted to do was really, he didn't really like her that much, um, I, probably because of what had happened. Although they were colleagues in a better, in a, in a more um, political sense. Um, but he fell deeply in love with her, and so the whole he wanted the whole nature of Romeo and Juliet is really reflected in that relationship. And then, and both queens kept them from from coming together. And then again, the queen just wouldn't acknowledge, and he was forced. He was basically kept in virtual poverty. He wasn't even as brilliant as he was. Francis Bacon was never given any major position even in the government of England, until James I after her death. And up to that point, he was, you know, all of the Merchant of Venice, you know, was about having to borrow money from Charlotte, you know, and all of that. I mean, he constantly had to borrow money. Anthony basically kept him by his inheritance going. Um, and so what do you feel is the fundamental communication to us all and our audience about this study that you have been doing about him, since it seems rather amply evident in the way you've described, and I know of other Baconians who have done this awesome research, who come to the unquestionable conclusion that okay, but, Bacon is. Okay. So what do you feel that we should all know most? Okay, but I, aside from him... See, the part of English literature, because he really initiated the, French, the English Renaissance, okay? But he also was then about the scientific ideas. And if you read really his ideas on science, it's really close to quantum physics within that, within that time period. You know, the Royal Society of England, which was the first scientific society, all traced their ideas back to Francis Bacon and, honor, and honored him. So he was, back to the three treasures of Paracelsus, he was bringing three treasures, which was bringing about the resurrection of the arts in the ways that the Greeks used it. His great love was Homer. And it was to bring out the way that Greek theater was really mirroring the soul. It was an ethical teachings of soul through these characters in power, in, in love, in motivation. As we see in Shakespeare. Yeah, as we see there. And not only in Shakespeare, but in other things, you know, that sure. were written. I mean, what comes out in the cipher is that, you know, Robert Burton, who wrote Anatomy of Melancholy, was one of his masks he bought. He was a friend, but he also bought his name. And, you know, and the code is within, the, you know, that as well. Um, so these things are about where he was... Uh, he was, and then through the Freemasons and the Rosicrucians, he was creating a group of men that were ethically trained, and women, but mostly, you know, at that point it was the mm -hmm. men, but there were women that were certainly part of things. Mary Sidney was part of it, very much so. And um, Elizabeth of Bohemia was, you know, was a very close, he mentored her. And, of course, she was, they had the great hopes that that's when the, the Rosicrucian Manifesto came out, which is to finally have a monarchy that would reflect democratic values that could begin to build 
consciousness of how the poor could be helped. And really, his whole real ideas, aside from, that's why I didn't want to just get lost in Shakespeare, because that is certainly an important part, but it's his mission was bigger. It was the brotherhood of man, and it was being able to use knowledge. I mean, one of the things up, up until, you know, him really, the, the ways that people were trained in universities at Cambridge or Oxford, they were the schools at that point, where, and the nobles were trained in that, anybody that was educated. It was really almost knowledge was a lot of times just Aristotelian that was just all this dialectic of fighting, all the you know, arguing. Academic. It was academic polemics. arguments, polemics. He was saying Rhetoric. knowledge should be used to uplift and benefit people and free sure. people. His development of science had to do with ideas that could free people from just toiling their lives away and be able to then... So he was a British Buddha. Really. And, you know, when they say he's the father in the Industrial Revolution, actually it's really wrong. I mean, even somebody like Thomas Berry, who I love, you know, Thomas Berry was saying as if, you know, this whole uh, problem we have with this mechanized universe traces back to Bacon's thinking, but that's not true. If you really read Bacon's essays, one of them is Cupid and the Atom, and he was then warning that if we develop science and these new ideas without having a consciousness of love, we're mm. going to create a monster worse than, Isn't you know. Um, so, in other words, if we industrialize without a consciousness of love and, you know, an approach to what needs to be done towards nature lovingly, towards each other lovingly, um, then, you know, we're going to create uh, a monster. Technology without heart. Absolutely. He was, he was saying it then, okay? And then, right. but right. also, so he, the three treasures are really the, the ethical brotherhoods that were established that led to all the democratic movements. Certainly our founding fathers all got traced back to Francis Bacon and fully used to study his thinking and, you know, and in masterminding the English colonization plan and setting up, you know, that it had to do with having America be a place where there'd be freedom of thought, tolerance of religion, freedom of science. So what happened to South America with the domination under the Spanish and the Catholic Church and what they did to the Indians and so on would not take place, even though we didn't treat our Indians that great. But people like our founding fathers, they, I mean, for Franklin, love, you know, very much and incorporated and Jeffrey, you know, incorporated our Indians. Uh, the, you know, that became a big the part Iroquois. of, yeah, the Iroquois teachings, especially with Franklin. Exactly. Anyway, so his real thing, aside from being Shakespeare, is the fact that he is really the Western catalyst for the Aquarian age. Yes. I okay? It. Mm -hmm. And it's bigger and it's broader. The story is bigger and broader. He's the brain's heart and soul behind he really it. Is. Going back many hundreds of years. And he's, he was envisioning that. And a royal essentially. And setting up really the plans that would, that we all, a lot of us, you know, that we take for granted that are, are rooted there. So it's really he who set this into motion. He was a great soul. And that's a really interesting. And many people feel subsequently, and he became the master Saint Germain, which I feel is truthful too. So that you know, many times before someone becomes really a master in that way, they go through a significant life that is really just prior. Uh, that is a sacrifice life. 
certainly Blavatsky went through that. He went through that. I mean, many, many great souls, they go through a physical plane life that is just where they're, they're coming in off the, like, like from another planet, if you will, to bring in this new, but they go through hell to do it. And then they graduate, you could say, outside of the material plane to this other level of still being able to interact with earthly life, but not of it. Yeah, well, in St. Germain's case, he's a, he's a master that actually comes into the body on, on uh, occasion. So, and he was known to have lived hundreds of years and documented that. Mm-hmm. It's, and it's even, you know, it's documented, actually. I mean, yeah. they're... So um, in um, so uh, so anyway, um, this is uh, for all of you. Um, I hope I I hope uh, you'll you'll look more deeply at Francis Bacon. For those of you who are interested in this ciphered biography, the sources are the biliteral cipher by Elizabeth Wells Gallup, as well as um, Orville Owen that worked in a different cipher system called the Word Cipher. And um, but there were basically six ciphers. Also, a good source about him is Peter Dawkins. Um, he's a wonderful uh, uh, expert on all of this. Um, so if you look up his site, um, another great book is the Shakespeare Code by a woman named Virginia Fellows. So uh, these would all. So if anybody wants to, um, I uh, I encourage you. Uh, and if anybody wants to help, there's so much work that could be done on this. You're welcome to contact me as well. <laughs> well, no, not interns, but just there may be people that care right. about bacon the same way, that there's plenty of things, there's more stuff to be deciphered and so on. Great. Mary Ellen, thank you so much. <laughs> All of you. Awesome input. Awesome input. Do you have a phone number or website? Um, you, you know, like you can contact us? me. I, I do have a website. It's called maryellenmccabe.com. Um, it's mostly what I've done really with my music work, but at least my contact info is there, yeah, such yeah. as my phone and uh, email and all of that. Wonderful. So if anybody is interested, you can find out that way. And, um, and, uh, but thank I thank but Thank you so much for sharing this. I hope, uh, I hope, I hope it was inspiring to others. Thank you. I think it was for sure. Thank you very much. <laughs> Appreciate it, Mariela. Okay. Bye. This is Mitchell J. Raven for a Better World. Thanks so much for joining us, and I hope you got as much out of that as I did. It's awesome material, both the metaphysical roundtable with which we began, and as you could see, I think some of you could uh, follow the. Uh, through line into this last piece with Mary Ellen McCabe on Francis Bacon. In other words, what's happening behind the scenes, behind the masks, behind the appearance of things? What is the life going on that actually generates more life and more ideas and more heart and soul? And it's so interesting because this has been going on forever and it keeps recurring and it keeps recycling because until we get it right folks we're going to keep going through it so it's a game of consciousness it's a game of heart it's a game of soul and the sooner we get onto that track the happier we will all be thanks again for joining us remember to join us at our website www.abetterworld.tv you can watch our TV show on television in Manhattan or every Tuesday night at 10.30 p.m., of course, at uh, EDT. You can watch on our website, 
directly where it says click here to watch. It should be pretty obvious. Again, Mitchell Raven, again, appreciate all of our guests today. Peter Roth, Carol Comer, married to my wonderful dear friend Hugh, and a great metaphysician in himself, and my dear friend and colleague Mary Ellen McCabe. That's all for now, and now we will complete with a touch of... (laughs) 